Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Okay, class, good morning. We'll get started a little bit early to make sure we get through everything. So I'll invite everyone to turn to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to use verses 5 and 6 as a jumping-off point. All right, let's stand to pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. We entreat you, precious Lord, to open our eyes, to open our heart, open our hearts, and open our ears, that we may obediently sit under, learn from, and obey your word, that you, O Lord, by the means of ordinary grace, will transform us by your word, and step by step and day by day, cultivate and nourish the spiritual seed implanted in our hearts, that our spiritual trees may grow, and we, O Lord, may grow up in maturity of the faith, reaching farther and farther towards our Heavenly Father, who is above. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Amen. So, and the other thing that I'm gonna say is we're gonna wade through a lot of uh, doctrinal material today, so the only thing that I'd uh, ask the class is that I'm gonna uh, leave, uh, leave time for questions, but leave all questions until the end. So. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. We'll use that as a jumping off point. So that text says, Paul ends speaking about Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So Paul is called to be an apostle to all the Gentiles, but we established last week that as a subset of all the Gentiles, there are those who are called of Jesus Christ, meaning amongst all the Gentiles in the entire world, a subset of the Gentiles are those who are called, are those who are chosen and who are therefore in the church of Jesus Christ. So the question that we left off with last week was, considering we live in a world where some people do not believe in God, do not profess faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the question we left off with was, did Jesus Christ die for everyone? And the specificity of that question was, cognizant that we live in a world where some people don't believe in God, our question was, did Jesus die for everyone so that ultimately everyone would be saved or that some people would be saved? We clarified that further and said, by design, did Jesus die so that salvation would be made merely possible or... Did Jesus die specifically for a definite people so that by design all people that God died for would be saved? Now here's a critical differentiation. 
We are not, we are not, we are not, we are not, we are not today arguing against the sufficiency of the atonement. We are not arguing against that. We are not saying is the atonement that Jesus made on the cross sufficient, meaning if we take the worst sinner possible and put them up against what Jesus Christ finished on the cross. We're not asking is what Jesus did good enough to save that sinner, because it is. It's God's atonement. What we're asking is if God by design in eternity past died specifically for a particular people so that ultimately those whom he died for would be saved. We're arguing, we're wrestling with the efficiency of the atonement, not the sufficiency. We are not considering if what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient for all sinners. We are asking if by design it was efficient for some sinners, we are not asking if the blood of Christ can atone for any, every, or even the worst sinner. We are asking if God has sent his son to die on a cross with the intent of specifically applying that atonement to only redeem a particular people. So we have five possibilities. Possibility number one is God died for everyone by design the result is everyone is saved. And we eliminated that possibility last week because heaven and hell exist, because reality tells us some people don't profess faith. Possibility number two is God died for everyone. The result is some people are saved. Poss other uh, part of the tree is God died for some people and some of the some are saved. God died for some people, and then all of the some are saved. God died for no one, and no one gets saved. We also eliminated possibility number five, because that simply doesn't make any sense. Now, these two possibilities, God died for everyone, and some people get saved. God died for some people, and some of the some get saved. There's a gap. Right? There, there, there's, a, there's a space in between those whom God died for and those who are ultimately saved. Now, there are different schools of theological thought. There's Armenianism, there's Pelagianism, and knowing what these particular schools of thought are are not important. What we have to know is that, theologically speaking, if there's ever a gap between who by design God died for and those whom are actually saved, that, exp that is explained by, ultimately, human choice. It's explained by that, ultimately, who's ultimately going to be decisive in whether someone is saved or not is me, is you, meaning God makes something possible, and then now, ultimately, the person now chooses. And in many senses, that choosing is a work. It's something that you or I do. Like when someone says, I choose Christ, or I decided to be saved, that's in essence where that theological school of thought comes from. So we're going to search now for a biblical answer to the question of the efficiency of the atonement. How we're going to find an answer is we're going to begin broad and then narrow. We're going to allow the whole to interpret the part. 
we're going to consider everything that God says and then narrow it down. So, first we're going to consider verses like John 129, where John the baptizer looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We have verses like 1 John 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, where the Apostle John says Jesus Christ is a propitiation for our sins, but not just us, but for the entire world. Then there are other verses like 1 John 4.4, 4, like 1 John, I'm sorry, 1 John 4.14, 1 John 4.14, Hebrews 2.9, 2 Peter 3.9, and Titus 2.11. We're not going to ignore any of these verses because all of these verses speak to the sufficiency of the atonement, that the atonement that Christ made is sufficient for the entire world. One of my favorite verses that tells us about the sufficiency of the atonement is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. What does that say? This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So these verses begin by saying, this is good and acceptable. What is this? This points back to what uh, Paul writes to Timothy in verses 1 to 2. This uh, points back to the command to pray for the lost. What does verse 4 say? That God our Savior desires all men to be saved. He desires that all men to be saved. But even though God desires all men to be saved. Are all people saved? Oh, all people are not saved. This verse says that God desires all people to be saved. What does Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 say? That God hands some individuals over to their own reprobate mind because they suppress knowledge of him, they suppress the truth, and the same God who desires all men to be saved now hands over some people to the lusts of their warped carnal heart. The result is a depraved mind and no faith in Christ. When God desires that all men be saved, he's acting consistent with who he is. Because in his dispositional will, of course he desires everyone to come to knowledge of the faith because God made us. He made all human beings. Men and women are made in his likeness. So when we consider verses like Isaiah 45, 22, Isaiah 55, 1, Ezekiel 18, 23, and Ezekiel 18, 32, of course God desires for everyone to be saved because we are the only part of creation made in his image. God is never filled with glee over those individuals who are condemned. But verses 5 to 6 here say that Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now we consider this verse 
in the context of God having a divine desire for all men to be saved with the reality that some people are idolaters, right? So what this verse communicates when it says that Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, what this tells us is that real benefits exist for everyone because Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior, and his work on the cross is finished. So can anyone, is it possible that anyone can be saved based upon what Jesus Christ did on the cross? And the answer is, of course they can. This is why anyone here can go to anywhere in the world and tell someone else the gospel and tell them Jesus Christ is the savior for all humankind because he is. You can do that without hesitation or reservation because God desires and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is sufficient. Jesus is the savior of all humankind because he is and he demonstrates grace to all people. Revelation 22:17. Jesus is a non-partial, non-discriminatory savior. So God desires all men to be saved. Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. But is everyone saved? No. Just acts Judas. Just acts Pilate. Just acts Caiaphas. Just ask the Antichrist. So now again, by design, who did Jesus die for? What was God's plan? What was his intent? How does he apply the atonement? Now before we get specific, let's consider what the Bible says overall. Let's go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when we look at who was redeemed, who was saved, the overall theme is particularism, meaning by design, God did not save everyone, but he saved a particular people. Did God save everyone from the flood? Did he save the entire world from the flood? He didn't. He preserved how many people? Eight people in the ark. Now, I don't know how many folks were living at that time, but the point is that God did not save everyone. He saved eight. He saved a particular people. Did Abraham ascend up to heaven and choose God or did God find and choose Abraham? Did God make a promise to all peoples on the entire earth, or did he find one particular man and make a particular promise to a particular person? Did the Hebrews set themselves free from Egyptian bondage? When Moses went up to Pharaoh, did he say, let everybody go? Did he say that? He said, let my people go. In the Old Testament, did God make covenantal promises to all nations on earth or 
to one specific nation. He made promise, covenantal promises to one specific nation, the nation of Israel. That's who God promised to protect, to safeguard, to redeem, and to preserve in the promised land. Now we're in the New Testament. Did anyone in the New Testament knock on heaven's door and say, we need a savior? No. God came down from heaven to seek and to save that which was lost. In Jesus' public ministry, did everyone respond to his message or a particular people? So the overarching theme in the Bible overall is particularism. So now we're going to move from the general to the particular, very, very specific verses. Now remember, when we consider these verses now, remember this. When we're talking about whenever there's a gap between all those who God died for and those who are ultimately saved, remember, the thing that's ultimately decisive here, the thing that's ultimately decisive is human choice, is human decision. So now we're going to consider verses that clarify and reveal God's design of salvation. 1 Timothy 4.10. We have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. 1 Timothy 4.10. Here's John 3.3. 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. By a show of hands, who here chose to be born? Who here made the decision to be birthed into the world? No one. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus? That unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We never cause ourselves to be born again. That is a decision independent of us that God is in charge over. Jesus says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 15, Jesus says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Who are the sheep? Psalm 100 verse 3 tells us, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Hmm. So it seems, God seems to be communicating the reality that he lays down his life for his own, for his people, for his sheep. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 to 9. God, who God who has saved us and called us with a, a holy calling, not according to our works, not according to our decision, not according to our choice, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. What this verse tells us is that God chooses, he makes a sovereign choice 
that is timeless, meaning that sovereign choice is independent of us and it's also independent of time because it happens in eternity. John 17, 9. Now everyone knows the real Lord's prayer is in John 17, 9, right? When God prays to God. We, we pray the fake Lord's prayer, our Father which art in heaven. That's the prayer we make to God. But the real Lord's prayer is the prayer the Lord made to the Lord, John 17. So here's what Jesus says in John 17, the high priestly prayer. He says, I am praying for them. Who are them? The sheep of his pasture. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Rewind. Jesus says in John 17, 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you, he's speaking to the Father, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In John 3, 16, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What Jesus says in John 17, 9 is that he's not praying for everyone. He's praying for God's sheep. He's not praying for the world. So in John 3, 16, when it says, for God so loved the world, realize, church, that love is not without distinction. God makes a distinction between individuals, and that makes perfect sense because if God regarded those who have faith and those who don't, if he regarded the righteous and the unrighteous in the same way, then God would not be God. Then God would not be holy. John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless... The Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31 says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many normal, noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Final verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What Paul writes in these verses is that God did not make us alive so that we can reject Christ. It says, God, we were dead, meaning we couldn't do anything because we were spiritually dead. 
But what Paul writes here is that God made us alive not to reject Christ, but to be with him, and that he raises us up not to an intermediate state or not to an in-between area where we now decide he raises us up with Jesus. It's a full turnaround from spiritual death to now born again new spiritual life in our Lord and Savior. Because as Paul will then write in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. So church, why did I use all of those verses and start really, really broad and narrow it down? Because everything we've talked about today communicates the doctrine of limited atonement. Limited atonement, which is also described as definite atonement or definite redemption. Limited atonement emanates from the reality that God is sovereign. God is in charge. God is in complete and total control. So what does this mean? This means that Jesus died specifically for a definite, predestined people. Jesus died specifically for a definite, predestined people so that by God's design, everyone that Jesus died for would be saved. Why did I have you read Romans chapter 9? Because there's an entire chapter in the Bible devoted to the doctrine of limited atonement. What does the Apostle Paul write there? There were two twins, Jacob and Esau. Why were there twins? Because God was showing to us. Biologically, naturally, they were the same. Same daddy, same uh, mother. They were both Jews. They were part of the presupposed chosen people. And what does Paul communicate there in Romans chapter 9? That before they were born, God chose one over the other. And because God chose Jacob, then Jacob was saved because God did not choose Esau. Esau was not. Limited atonement means, church, that Jesus died specifically for some people. He did not die for everyone. He died specifically for some people, and all of the some are saved. Limited atonement means that God does not play dice. Limited atonement tells us that in eternity past, God knew precisely whom he would save. So by design, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was an actual definite atonement for an actual definite People, yes, sufficient for the entire world, but 100% efficient for everyone it was designed to save. 
the doctrine of limited atonement. Now let's reinforce the truth of limited atonement by considering if atonement is not limited. Let's consider unlimited atonement, that Jesus died for everyone just to make salvation possible, and now a, a person, now an individual, makes the choice for God. If atonement is not limited, you know what that means, church? That means now God does play dice. Then the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is not a definite but a potential atonement. Even more, if a person does believe in a merely potential atonement, then what they are actually saying is that God is not sovereign because now God's plan failed. Realize what people are saying. If they were to say that God died for everyone and only some people are saved, you know what they're actually saying? They're saying God failed. They're saying God by design died with the intention to save everyone, but his plan failed. A doctrine of unlimited atonement is dangerous because it tries to dismantle, it tries to call God not omnipotent, but the Bible tells us otherwise. Someone who believes in not limited atonement what they're actually saying is that, by design, the atonement of Christ was designed by God to save everyone, but it didn't, but it doesn't, because God failed to accomplish his purposes. If atonement is not limited, then the most powerful force in the universe is not God. It's human decision. Why is that? Because now, after God makes salvation merely possible, a person can now resist his grace and choose otherwise, in which case God is not God because God is not sovereign. Limited atonement is one of the most offensive doctrines in the entire Bible. Why? Because it communicates that God is sovereign. Jesus actually was kicked out of Nazareth because he exposited a sermon that communicated the idea that God is in complete and total control. Why is that offensive? Because if God is sovereign, that means we're not. If God is sovereign, that means human beings are now not in charge. People don't like the idea of hell, not because it's, it's a manifestation of God's justice. People don't like the idea of hell because a sovereign God can send you there. On the same note, people don't like, it, it's the same principle in reverse. On the same note, people don't like the doctrine of limited atonement because what it actually says is that God is in charge of who makes it into heaven. It's the same principle simply applied to another eternal destiny. And if your head is hurting, now I'm going to make it hurt even more. <laughs> Is hell real? Everyone says yes. Okay. Hell proves limited atonement is true. Hell proves that universalism is false. Who's in hell? 
people who are atoning for their own sin. Wait a minute. If people in hell are atoning for their own sin, that means what? That the atonement Jesus Christ made on the cross has not been applied to them. That's why they're in hell, beloved, because they're the ones making an eternal atonement under the, the eternal wrath of God for their own sin. If Jesus died for everyone and God applied that atonement to every human being, then hell couldn't exist because that would now mean that God is sending someone to hell whose sin has already been atoned for. The existence of hell proves that universalism is false, and it also proves that limited atonement is true. Now, here's the final question. You may not want to say it to me to my face, but you may go home and tell your girlfriend in private. You're saying, this is not fair. You're saying, this is not fair. In Romans chapter 9, Paul says, will the, will the piece of pottery argue with the potter and say, why have you made me this way? Church, be very, very careful about ever asking God to be fair because grace is not fair. If God was fair and gave everyone what they deserved, heaven would not exist and everyone would go to hell. So if someone ever were to hold on to the idea and say, God, that's not fair, be careful that God actually does give you what you deserve. Hell is fair. Heaven is not. Justice is fair. The grace of God is not. Now the wheels are turning. Your head hurts. Maybe you're nauseous. Maybe you're dizzy. When you go home and you wrestle with this doctrine, here's the ultimate question you have to ask yourself. You have to ask yourself, do you actually believe? I'm not talking about do you think with your mind. Do you actually believe in your heart that God is sovereign? Because if he is, that means he's in complete and total control. And if God is sovereign and he is in complete and total control, that means he decides precisely and exactly who gets saved, that Jesus dies for some and all of the some get saved. So going back to where we began last week, possibility number four is biblically correct. So that no one that, so that everyone that Jesus died specifically for is saved. The atonement is sufficient for everyone, but it's 100% efficient for all of those for whom God died for by his divine, eternal design. Any questions? You may not have it now, but we're not going to have Sunday school for two weeks. So you can spend the next three weeks thinking, mulling it over. And I'll just say this. Hearing the doctrine of limited atonement, no one says, that sounds great. No. If you're saying that and you're, you know, giddy and happy, you haven't gotten it. It means hearing it, saying, struggling with it, like Jacob, wrestling with it for a long, long time. And then finally, you'll obtain some clarity. Limited atonement, understanding and grasping it is never a head problem. 
it's a heart problem. It's wrestling with the sovereign purposes of God and coming face to face with not just believing God is sovereign in theory, but also taking the sovereignty of God to its natural conclusions in every aspect of the universe. So, yes, question. The mere existence of hell proves that universalism is false. Universalism says God dies for everyone and everyone gets saved. So the fact that hell exists proves universal universalism false because if God died for everyone and everyone gets saved, no one go to hell. So the fact that hell exists proves universalism false. It proves limited atonement true. Why? Because the people who are, in, uh, who are in hell are making an atonement for their own sin. Meaning what? That the atonement Jesus made on the cross does not apply to them. That's why they're in hell. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we knew diving into the book of Romans, it would not oftentimes be simple, nor would it be easy. Which is why, O oh Lord, we humbly sit under and listen to your word and just ask you, Divine Spirit, as we are not our own teachers, but you are the ultimate spiritual teacher. And as we go home today in the days and weeks ahead, we just ask you to remove the, the cloudy mirrors of understanding from our eyes and open the dim windows in our hearts that we may truly appropriate, embrace, and understand your foundational doctrinal truths in the book of Romans, so we will not only know with our minds, but also treasure your truth in our hearts. That will allow us to grow, allow us to mature, and be firmly established in your inerrant, infallible, biblical truth. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.